0: Welcome to Walkley Talks. I'm Claire Fletcher from the Walkley Foundation for Journalism. Every few weeks we share discussions about the craft and importance of journalism in Australia and the world, often recorded at our events. This episode features an international guest. As president and CEO of the New York Times company since 2012, Mark Thompson has overseen the digital transformation of one of the world's most respected media companies. Mark gave an agenda-setting address when he visited Australia in April, sharing his thoughts on the risks of declining investment in quality journalism, how that impacts democracy, and the implications for both publishers and politics. Mark brings a big-picture global perspective to these topics. You'll hear Mark give a speech, and then Paul Barry, the wonderful host of Media Watch on ABC, will interview Mark. This talk was recorded at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney, on the 12th of April, 2019, at an event presented in partnership
1: with the New York Times. In many ways, this is the best time there's ever been to be a journalist. It often feels like it's the worst time. And I guess I'd spend just a few minutes talking about those two things, particularly the second. The technology enables us to reach as many or more people than we've ever done before. Means we can all think about doing journalism for the world. And it's also an amazing time for stories. The world, as everyone here knows, is going through an astonishingly disruptive transitional phase. After decades of, I think, what in retrospect looks like relative stability, many countries, particularly Western countries, are wrestling with a whole set of difficult choices. We're seeing massive political disruption, globalization, automation, mass human migration, the challenge of climate change, questions inside our societies about inequalities and social justice, the relations between the different genders and so forth. This is producing incredible stories, and stories which are often very interconnected. Julian Assange is arrested in the Ethiopian embassy in London. That's a story of great interest to people in this country but actually the actions in many ways now moving to Washington DC and uh, the question of what Mr Trump is questioned about Wikileaks in the last few hours he said it's quote not my thing. used to be his thing I think but no longer his thing. So often we find you know the chief financial officer of Huawei also arrested this time in Canada. That's a tech story. It's a Canadian story actually it 's a geopolitical story it 's a story about the United States and china and it 's a 5g story it 's about the emerging revolution in smartphones it 's all of those things at the same time and these kinds of stories I think are very very rich they 're quite difficult to cover, but certainly they 're the kind of story the New York Times we particularly aspire, and we try and bring all of the expertise together, all the different specialties the tech experts the Washington DC guys, we've got a 31 foreign bureau, we've got people living in many of the major countries of the world, we try and bring them all together to do justice to these stories. And we can do that partly because we've got 1600 people involved in journalism now. That's hundreds more than a few years ago and this year we're hiring. We're still trying to build our resources and I'll explain about how we've got to a point where that's economically not just possible but in our view It's essential. We're a news organization which believes in investing in journalism rather than cutting it back. Some people say this period of incredibly rich stories will end, and people often say, well, you're doing quite well at the moment, Mark, but that's only because of Trump in the White House. What happens when he leaves? Isn't it all gonna collapse? The good news is, (laughs) I'm not gonna say that Western civilization is ending, but we've got a spot of bother, and if we take America, I don't think there's going to be a magic moment where somebody enters the White House, the country stops being disunited, everyone gets together, and normal service is renewed. That isn't going to happen anytime soon in my country, the UK. We seem to have got ourselves into a locked room called Brexit, and we know we've lost the key. Doesn't look like we're going to find it anytime soon. And again, looking at politics in this country, it's going to take quite a lot to get back to the the good old days, so I have a lot of faith in a feisty news cycle lasting for a long time. But I started by saying it's also not, it doesn't feel often like it's a great time to be a journalist. And there are a number of reasons for that. Straightforwardly, this is probably the most dangerous time in history to be a journalist. Around the world, more journalists are being prevented from doing their work, are being harassed, are being arrested, are being convicted and sent to jail, are being tortured are being injured and murdered than at any point in history. It's a terrible thing to say in 2019, but the climate for free expression and for the free and open access of the world's population to news you can trust is darkening. not getting better, it's getting worse. It's getting worse on most continents. And it's not getting worse by accident, it's getting worse because of a deliberate set of policies by different political factions, and by many governments. And so one thing we face is people don't like what we do. I know there's many journalists in this room, but increasingly, and they're impatient. In the United States, the President of the United States describes the New York Times as the enemy of the people. Our publisher, Arthur Greg Salzburger, had a face-to-face argument with the President a few months ago about this, and Arthur made the point, of course we should be open to criticism we say we're holding everyone else to account, everyone should be allowed to criticise what we do, including loyal subscribers like Donald Trump. We try and keep them happy, we don't always succeed. But incendiary language, aggressive language like the enemy of the people is asking for trouble. It's asking for someone, maybe some crazy out there to actually act on those words and it's not right. It's not right. The other external challenge we face, obviously, is there's now a lively debate about whether independent journalism is even possible. You know, there is fake news. There's also an attempt by many governments to say, actually, any news we don't like is fake news. Again, Mr. Trump, clearly, he's decided to demonize news organizations like The Times, CNN, and The Washington Post, not because our news is fake. It frankly, straightforwardly, isn't. I'm sure it's not perfect always, but it's obviously in all three cases an attempt to get at the truth. It's because he doesn't like what it says. So that debate is raging. I think in many ways it reminds us about why we became journalists and, and what we're trying to do with our journalism. But nonetheless, I think it does have the effect of muddying the water for journalism, so that people out there might think, for example, in the States, the New York Times, Infowars... Well, maybe the truth lies somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the middle. But obviously the big central challenge to journalism in most markets today is an economic one. The old business models in particular, the incredible role historically of advertising in supporting journalism has been under acute stress. Business models have looked tougher and the response of most news organisations has been to try and do something on the digital side to find it hard to scale something on digital, which is big enough to make up for the for the lost ground in print, but not really to succeed. To see the total economics of the company therefore degrading. To go for defensive consolidation, so you get concentrations of ownership, you get media groupings coming together. In the US currently we're seeing the big newspaper groups, and gone thinking about getting together. In entertainment we're seeing steps like the Disney purchase of 20th Century Fox, AT&T buying, Time Warner, Comcast buying B and so on. So you're seeing this consolidation of assets. And these are defensive. I mean they're all absolutely trying, in the case of entertainment, to bulk up to take on Netflix, but it feels defensive. The new digital publishers are struggling. Huffington Post, Vice, BuzzFeed, we did an interview at the Times with Jonah Peretti, one of the founders of BuzzFeed, who again was talking about consolidation. Jonah says, well maybe we haven't got the scale, maybe we need to get together with Vox and Vice and others if we're to have the scale to, to, if you like, take on and be able to negotiate effectively with the big digital platforms. We're trying to do something different at the Times and I'll just spend just five minutes talking about what we're trying to do. Our theory is a different one and it's super simple. We think if we can make great journalism and we market it effectively and package it in digital assets and get good at presenting those assets to the people in America and around the world, we can persuade them to subscribe to the Times and make that into a great business. The theory being you make something good, you put it in the shop window, people come in and buy it, you get revenue, you can invest in making more good things. And that's how we've got into that virtuous circle of building our newsroom. When I came to the Times, it had already, a year before I came, launched a digital pay model and when I came we had about 600,000 digital subscribers. We now have three and a half million, give or take, digital subscribers. We have set ourselves a goal of building that to get past the 10 million digital subscriber mark by 2025. Eminently possible. In 2015, we set ourselves a goal of doubling our digital revenue, so pure play digital revenue from $400 million a year globally to $800 million. And I believe we're going to hit that goal a year early. I think we'll hit that goal by the end of this year. And we're using that money to reinforce the idea of distinctive journalism, investigative journalism. Arguably beyond our big global coverage investigative journalism, having teams trying to do the journalism of revelation, holding politicians to account, big businesses to account and powerful individuals to account, is both a great proposition when you're trying to explain why someone should pay for a New York Times subscription, but it's also our mission. And that's meant proper coverage of Donald Trump. It's meant things like our Me Too coverage, the investigations into Harvey Weinstein, Bill O'Reilly, which sparked a global conversation. It's meant investigations into the very powerful Silicon Valley platforms. For example, the reporting we've done on Facebook over the last year. But it also means trying to report the world to the world. And we're more active in Australia than than we've ever been. Uh, We have a mighty army of about nine journalists, give or take. A bureau of nine people here, plenty more than we had. It's really important to say our thesis is not about trying to come into a market and to compete with and kind of overtake local media. That's never going to happen. If you want outstanding coverage of Australia, your first choice should be Australian media sites. But we do think there's a segment of the audience who, in addition to that first view, that first read, want a broader perspective. Periodicals like The Economist have always done that in markets like this one. We think we can do that. And these interconnected stories, in particular, the Assange story being a good example, Jeffrey Rush and the defamation case here which the Times reported immediately and reported globally. For us that connects, we did an enormous 15 to 20,000 word takeout about the Murdochs, a really thorough piece of reporting about the Murdochs and a recent story 10 days ago in the New York Times. And we love these stories, wherever they occur in the world, where we can bring them to the whole world, but we are sufficiently embedded in different parts of the world in different countries and have spent long enough in those countries that we're, you know, frankly, having the humility to listen and understand and try and get into a kind of knowledge of and a sensitivity to local political context, local culture and so forth, that we can report them fairly. So we see ourselves as complementary, but we have a bold ambition. We want to be one of the world's great news providers and we want to be better at explaining the most complicated and most significant stories of the world to the whole world. So we're growing. And we're growing because of one or two very, very simple principles. And the weird thing is, I think we're quite rare in having those principles. We believe that there are people all over the planet who really want to understand what's going on and who want access to reliable information, trustworthy information they can use to make up their own minds about what's happening. We think they will pay for that. We think it's a valuable service and they will pay for that. And we think, moreover, that once word of that gets around, that will grow. We don't think the news cycle is going to quieten down any time soon. We think the world is going to go on throwing up astonishing stories. March 2019, Mueller report, but actually not really a big Trump month. The appalling shooting in Christchurch the 737 coming down in Ethiopia. These are stories of the year and we're living in in a moment where several stories of the year are breaking in a single month. We think that's going to continue and the need for outstanding journalism is not going to diminish, it's not going to fall away, it's going to grow. So we face, like everyone else does in media, a hundred issues. How should we relate to Google and Facebook? How should we think about, digital advertising? How do we think about maintaining profitability? We are profitable and our revenue is growing, but how do we do that as the model changes, as the business model changes? So we face plenty of issues, but I guess the one thing I want to get across to you today is, although of course you can look at all of this and say it's complicated, it's really, really stressful trying to do the changes needed, I didn't come into journalism signing up to all this stuff and I wish it wasn't happening. All of us feel that on some occasions. I want to say there are plenty of days when I look at all of this and say we've never had a better opportunity to do great journalism for the world. You have to trust the public and you have to trust yourself But potentially journalism can have a better future than its past. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Terrific speech. Really good. can see why it's such a success. Um, and let me say I love the New York Times and I think what the New York Times is doing yeah. is great for journalism. But let me start with where you started, which is it's, there's never been a better time to be a journalist. One of our recent ex-Prime Ministers, we have several, <laughs>
1: And and a kind of fast fast breeder
2: reactor producing them, that's right. Told the world there's never been a better time to be alive and was met with almost universal derision. I think that idea that there's never been a better time to be a journalist would be met with similar skepticism by most people in the industry in this country or indeed in anywhere in the world. It seems to me that the New York Times has, has got an almost unique opportunity or an almost unique position, which you have exploited absolutely brilliantly and I must say I absolutely applaud you. But it seems to me you're like a global brand. You're like Sony or Huawei or you are in an industry where I think we're going to find four or five people ending up owning the whole world of journalism and you're going to be one of those, and the opportunity that you've got is really not available to people like us here,
1: or in many other places. uh, Would would you you think uh, that's fair? Well, I mean, certainly a lot of people believe that. A lot of other journalistic organisations are led by people who believe that and who explain why that means that they can't do the kind of things The Times is doing. Look, I want to say, right now, I think there are some quite interesting journalistic companies, Axios for example has started in recent months, who I think have got real prospects. They're thinking it's like a second generation or third generation digital only startup. I think they're thinking very smartly about their positioning, their distinctive offer, they're being intelligent about where they're thinking about their costs and I think they're doing some interesting work. The big thing, they've got self-belief. I mean to me the biggest single puzzle and the biggest single problem, and I have to say it's at the top of media organisations, is defeatism and a lack of self-belief. I was reliably told, back in 2012, a number of things about New York Times. First of all, people said, don't, for God's sake, don't take the job. Don't take the job. It's over. This is a brand, yeah, it's a wonderful brand, but it's stuck in the past. It's an incredibly conservative organisation. They've lost their way. They nearly went bust two or three years ago. The stock prices in the toilet and that's for a very good reason, you're wasting your time. Now I went into the building and started actually talking to people who work for it and I actually thought there was a kind of pent-up demand for change and I think that the challenge for the leaders that are the editors and the chief executives of media organisations is in your organisation You'll find people, they won't, by the way, often it's the youngest people or the most junior people in the organization who are hungry for a challenge and change. And it's almost like, I always feel in media, get out of the way of the change agents and let them do their thing. And I believe that, although, of course, having a big home market and having a global brand, of course, those are advantages. But some of the basic concepts, for example, When you're doing journalism, do it as if you mean it, and do it to a certain level of quality, and do not obsess about things like click, you know, the numbers of clicks. Clicks don't produce value in themselves. The whole idea that you could kind of cynically try and get people to click as many pages as possible and make a fortune through digital advertising, which a large number of the world's newspapers, like Lemmings, they blindly went over that hill Assuming that was going to work, it doesn't work. It hasn't made money. Subscription is the way we monetize at the moment, principally at the times. We've got a very successful digital advertising business as well because the content is good and advertisers want to be associated with the content. But the heart of it has been the idea that you establish a relationship with users where they trust you and they find you indispensable and they think what you're doing is different from other people's. I don't see why almost any publication in the world can't do that.
2: They don't have your scale, they don't have your audience, they don't have your home market. You've got a home market of 300 million people, you've got a very remote market in a sense it's very difficult to deliver newspapers in that. So it's unlike Britain where that's fully developed. It's also. Unlike Britain, in that there's a you know a lot of different newspapers competing. You are yeah. one of one of two or three, one of two really national brands in America, aren't you? Or one of three, perhaps well, at least in newspapers. I was going uh, to say. Once you add, and then you've got a worldwide yeah. audience as well. All of that's true. And you've got a great history, and you've got you've already got a big organisation that's already doing this. If you imagine the Sydney Morning Herald, for example, trying to go with your strategy. Create wonderful journalism to sell around the world. How much money is that going to cost them before they get any sort of return? It's like a Silicon Valley startup, the sort of model you're proposing. Completely. No, yeah, it's no, incredibly I, 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 risky. I,
1: I, but, oh. <laughs> is you, it not? You're worried it's risky. No, I'm, no, I'm not. I'm not just worried <laughs> look, it's risky. Look out, look, out, look out the window. Clearly. I mean, there aren't the safe option, which is trying to kind of You know try and keep your profitability as long as possible by cutting all your costs and shrinking your newsroom so that traditional safe way of managing your business is a a certain path to the grave that will lead to death that business of winding it down till eventually you know the last journalist can switch off the light and you lock the newsroom that's certain death i would say live a little try and figure out ways in which you can differentiate yourself in many of these markets Media is getting more like each other. It's becoming less distinctive. The different news sources look more and more like each other. It seems to me you start thinking about doing precisely the opposite of that, trying to be different from everyone else, trying to do something which is exceptional and which people can't find anywhere else. And just beginning to figure out, how do you connect with people and offer them something which is worth paying for? And how do you think? I mean, Australia strikes me as being one of these countries which is in this very interesting, full of fascinating stories. Australia is both such a significant kind of part of the Western alliance and its culture, so much of it has a Western heritage. It's in the middle of the most exciting, fast-growing region in the world. Surely to God, in an Asian economy which is growing at 6%, where so many Asians across the region are interested in doing business with the West, sending their kids to Western education, trying to understand what the hell's happening in the West. It seems to me Australian media is particularly well placed to have a dominant voice in this region. So I'm not saying any of this is easy, and if you're saying you might have to invest for a bit, No, I'm uh, not saying you might years. have to. That's
2: what I'm saying is that I think that the way the industry is, will go is it will end up like many other industries. It will end up with four or five global brands, and you'll be one of them, and the Financial Times will be one of them, and the Wall Street Journal will be one of them, and the Economist will be one of them, and maybe the Guardian and the Mail on Sunday, or the Mail will be one of them. But there will not be much room in yeah. 10 years' time for large-scale competitors
1: of the sort that, you, that you're envisaging. Well, I, hope I you're,
2: don't think, I, hope I don't see I how ho- could
1: I, be. Ho- I hope you're wrong, not least, and I think to me this is like a first-order point, global brands, and by the way I absolutely include the New York Times in this, we are not set up, in the broader sense, provide, as it were, local, by local I mean for a given country, local journalism for a local audience. We're sure. never. And there's going to be an immense gap news is fundamentally for most people most citizens what's happening in my city my state my country looms large but we read about trump
2: if we go to the new york times we read about trump and that is of an ever ever
1: endlessly fascinating story for everyone of us of course of course and that's where players like the times can add something but to me what we're doing and the, the reason I'd always want to think of myself as a partner with Australian media rather than someone who's trying to substitute or kind of beat local media. Our thesis, I think, is a little bit different from the thesis, for example, of The Guardian. I, I'm a great admirer of The Guardian. And I read quite a lot of The Guardian's coverage of Australia. Our claims in terms of what we can do in this country are rather more modest mm-hmm. Australia. We want to... I say do the key stories, particularly the stories which are going to be of real interest not just to Australians but to the rest of the mm-hmm. world. but we, don't, we do not believe it 's going to make sense for us to scale to the extent which the Guardians sure. only tried to scale here. What I want to say though is part of this is about is a bet about demand, and I just want to say let 's not get trapped in the past i 'll just give you one example. We have a podcast called The Daily, which we launched after the election in February two thousand and seventeen and the Daily we do it five, six times a week. It's a basically it's inside one of the stories the Times is covering. The host interviews the journalist, maybe also some of the people in the middle of the story. Well, this thing, firstly, it's grown very big. It was last year it was the biggest podcast of its kind in terms of Apple, iTunes downloads. But monthly audience about nine million people, daily, two million, most of whom are listening for a full 20 minutes to this thing. The audience is really interesting. Three-quarters of that, it's a big and growing audience, three-quarters of the audience are 40 or younger. 46% are 30 or younger. Now, I've spent a lifetime Mm. in this industry being told that when it comes to audio, old people will take speech, young people only listen to music. It's simply not true. The truth is, if you make speech which is aimed largely at old people, it's true that largely old people will listen to it. There's a vast, unexploited market in intelligent speech, intelligent journalistic speech and other forms of speech for people under the age of 40, globally. There are so many opportunities here because people have got this kind of tramline thinking about the way the world was and the way media was and in particular, the fact that it's kind of impossible to make up for the lost revenue streams from digital. I think it's nonsense and I just say, being more open-minded about what we could do, people said it couldn't be done at the Times. I mean, I swear to God, five, six years ago, everything you're saying was said about the Times as well. And now the people said that, said, well, of course, you're an exception, you're different. <laughs>
2: well, I mean, look, your achievement is fantastic. When you took over the share price, it was, what, $5? It's now $30. Yeah. Your revenue is 1700000000 billion. You've got two-thirds of that coming from subscriptions, I believe. I want to say
1: none of this is plain sailing. I mean, no, but know, that is, you know, that is but remarkable. No, but you
2: are you are yeah. increasing your journalistic workforce yeah. and increasing your revenue and holding and increasing your digital revenue yeah. at a time when everyone else is going almost
1: everyone else is going the other way. It's a fantastic achievement. You've but it's really important to say I think the biggest thing that we did, not just me, but the group of leaders, and we by the way, we've made a lot of changes to the leadership. I mean when we get the uh, executive team I think there's one person who is one brilliant long-term employee who was there at the start. We've had a very big change in in leaders. We wanted people who are not sort of psychologically trapped in a way that some of the people who've grown up, quite understandably, have grown up in a very different business. But the big thing was, I think, letting go and just being a bit more kind of open to ideas from our colleagues and a willingness to try things and to make mistakes. We launched something earlier in my time called MIT Now, which was an attempt to make like a, an express version of the New York Times and the theory was much more visual version of the Times, absolutely focused on smartphone. And maybe we could make a lower priced subscription. Maybe we could, instead of typically a kind of $15, $16 per month subscription, maybe we could get people to subscribe at $5. And economically it was a total disaster. It's a total disaster. It says everyone liked it and nobody subscribed to it. You know. It got great reviews and nobody actually bought it. MIT now has a really interesting story because several things, however, happened. Firstly, they were making something new. It was a group of people who would not been given a chance to make something. They tried about 10 different things we'd never tried before. We cannibalized everything and put it into the main product. And we, we like saved five years of development. The mm. main product is like the Holy of Holies, the New York Times, and it's quite hard to get changed. But actually, we had all these things which we'd shown did work for audiences, didn't subscribe, but looked at it on NYT Now. So we just very quickly ported all these innovations, simple things like morning briefings and much more visual stories, and just moved them across to the main product. So that was really good. The biggest thing, though, was NYT Now, for the first time in the history of the company, the newsroom and the data scientists and the digital product and tech and designers and the marketing people all they formed a team, they kind of spent the entire day holed up in an office trying to figure out and make this thing, and that teamwork we ported to the rest of the organisation. So it was kind of breakthrough in how the organisation worked and how we, for years afterwards I was talking about how wonderful this thing was, and somebody says, well, why are you talking about it? Everyone knows it was a terrible failure. But I think that business of getting used to throwing stuff up on the wall mm. doesn't work, what do you learn? Move on, rather than this very precious, can you show me all the workings? Can you prove to me with a business model this is going to make a profit in three years? Well, sure. the honest truth is none of us know what's going to happen next week, let alone in three years' time.
2: Just going back to the sort of broader climate in which you've prospered, how much was Trump's nomination as Republican candidate in 2016? How important was that to you? Because you got a massive surge in
1: subscriptions when that happened. Yes, yeah, there's no question that the utterly unexpected turn of events through 2016 and this phenomenon which was very, I think, hard, not just for the time, for everyone to understand. I mean, it's an obvious point about journalism. journalism most journalists, and funnily enough, the more expert and experienced and specialist of journalism, the more this is true, it's like they've got a brain full of continuities, stuff they've seen before. They've got these patterns which have built up and often they're really good at predicting what's gonna happen because they've kind of seen it before and they know what yeah. this one looks like sort of thing. A discontinuity where something completely different happens. Brexit in the UK would be yeah. another example. It's like, what the hell, what is that? You have to regroup, but I think we responded to it well. It was a great storm. We had this other bizarre kind of marketing effect whereby the president started helping our marketing efforts by... By attacking it by, by tweeting It was a morning about 10 after the election where at about half past six in the morning the president tweeted, you know, a piece saying their subscriptions are collapsing, they're going to be out of business very quickly, you know, blah, 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 failing New York Times. And by about half past seven in the morning I was on a, a conference call. <laughs> I mean, you know, what's the right move when the president-elect... I mean, this is, you know, it's a country not used to this. The president-elect starts... Not just attacking an individual company, but also saying things which are straightforwardly not true, which we know are a series of factual things, which are well, sort of non factual things. What do you do? So, of course, obvious answer, you tweet back. And so by sort of 9 o'clock in the morning, we were out there tweeting. <laughs> not, not, by the way, we're not an opposition party. We're trying to keep calm about it. We've just set the record straight. And since then, I mean, there have been hundreds of tweets naming the Times. And nowadays it's not a conference call, the sort of most junior person in the comms department decides whether or not we're going to respond or not, <laughs> so it's has got, you know, how we say, some of us have got serious jobs to do, so we can't really, you know, we can't, we can't really engage in this stuff. I want to say the phase where that was the principal driver lasted about six or seven months, I think by the middle of 2017. That was out of the numbers, pretty much. And you got a 50% rise in subscriptions. We got a very significant rise. By the way, then I'll tell you exactly what happened. The rate at which the subscriptions were growing came down to a plateau. The plateau, however, was significantly higher than the, what had been before the Trump election. And from 2018 onwards, we've seen it rising yeah. again. And I think one of the things we say is, I think it's true that in late 16 and early 17, the president was significantly helping to grow our model. We believe that in 2018, 2019, we're growing it ourselves. Is he going to get re-elected, do you think?
2: I see today that his approval rating is on the economy is 58% positive.
1: The US economy is performing very well. Jobs have come back and actually wages have been rising for many segments, including the lowest deciles, and they haven't moved for years and years. Yeah. And I think, by the way, the Times, this is often, often because people find it hard to read everything, not appreciated. I think we've done a very good and fair job in describing, straightforwardly, how very well the US economy is doing. I was very much in a minority. I came back, I'd had a growing feeling through 16 that Trump had a good chance of winning. I came back from Europe after Brexit and tried to persuade my colleagues that, you know, the way the kind of tectonic plates in the West are moving, don't, you know, yeah. it's never happened before. It seems crazy. Do not rule out the fact that he could win. I was, I was in a minority then. I think he's very hard to beat. I'm not saying. He can't be beaten, but I think he's a formidable campaigner. The economy if it continues to be as strong as this people in America like most countries, in the end a lot of people vote with their wallets or pocketbooks I'm going to say in the, in the States. I think he's hard to beat.
2: Would it be fair to say the New York Times thinks he's a disaster? I mean what do you think of him? Well, I, I, I mean disaster is probably the wrong word, but it is pretty much a well, concerted opponent of Trump. With justification
1: the, surely. The opinion pages are certainly, we've been hiring it's interesting, I mean again, people don't Particularly outside of America, we've been hiring conservative voices, particularly Brett Stevens from the Wall Street Journal. We've got three or four conservative opinion writers. We want to show a full range of opinion, but it's true that the newspaper's leaders, its editorials, and the majority of its regular contributors are of the left, not the right. The news pages, I have to say, Dean McKay, the editor, and my colleagues try very hard to keep them objective. The US economy is performing very well. The idea that literally, this maverick was going to leave, kind of all the wheels of America were going to fall off immediately, clearly it hasn't happened. He continues to be a maverick, unexpected president. It's not clear, to put it politely, how many moves ahead in the chess game he's playing. He seems very instinctive and very intuitive and has got a disarming willingness to self-contradict. Uh, 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 sometimes for the, the brilliantly in the same speech, actually, but... but, but Is that <laughs> a willingness or an uh, incapacity? Um, but it's not, I don't think it's for me to judge... I mean, I think of him as one of the symptoms of a, a political moment where politics are being disrupted, in particular, traditional political parties and political groupings are being disrupted, As politicians lose the confidence of the public, a kind of vacuum opens up into which maverick populists can come. And I think you could argue that Silvio Berlusconi in Italy in the 1990s was the first of these. Berlusconi, quite Trump like, you know, the CEO, the successful, boastful CEO who's going to love him or hate him, at least he's not a politician and he can be trusted to run the country like he's run a successful company. That conceit, that idea, You know, another area, it might have been a bit like putting a general in charge. It's a sort of, these guys know what needs to be done. One of the great things Berlusconi said is, I'm not interested in rhetoric, I just care about what needs to get done. And Trump is a bit like that. Of course, both Berlusconi and Trump, all they do is play with words. So I think he's a symptom. You can see an awful lot of populism popping up in other countries, very different contexts, but this kind of... So I think he's one of them. Let's see what happens. I mean, history suggests The problem with populists is they will never confront difficult trade-offs. That actually, quite often, statesmanship and stateswomanship is about confronting difficult choices. What a willingness to be unpopular. and, And explaining to the public why difficult things have to happen. Sacrifices have to be made, we can't do this and this, we've decided to do this. Populists tend not to want to do that, and, as it were, characteristically, history suggests that catches up with them. You can do that for a while and you can be very popular for a while but sooner or later good government actually does require difficult choices and you get caught out but we'll see
2: in the long run maybe
1: in the long run could go on saying that for quite a long time I mean de- things de- democratic, democratic well. politics is often about the short run yeah,
2: so yeah yeah. yeah yeah let's switch to something completely different you ran the BBC for a long time I did 8 years yeah what challenges do you think the BBC is facing and what Public broadcasting here is also facing, and, and what are the
1: answers to well, that? Uh, again, it's global, isn't it? I mean, it could be because the, the fundamental pressures on the BBC are playing on the ABC, the CBC, yeah. and across Europe, when you talk to public broadcasts, the same issues. And so, to me, the fundamental pressures really are there's a whole layer of regulation and politics, and in particular, because commercial media is hurting so much, and because, bluntly, many leaders of commercial media aren't up for the painful investment and disruptive change that digital really requires, trying to squash the public broadcaster can be, almost like feel like a rather easier path to make life a bit easier. You can see that everywhere, I mean, kind of literally in Iceland, you know, the commercial media in Iceland, <laughs> ganging up on the public broadcasters. So we'll see that, but to me the fundamental question for all the public broadcasters, certainly to include the BBC, is really about audiences and to say, how are you going to keep relevant to tomorrow's and next year's and next decade audiences? The risk unless you can really break out from traditional linear broadcast norms is you'll have this very substantial and thanks to the invention of Statin's you know almost immortal (laughs) older audience you know they're gonna we are going to hopefully most of us crack on for a bit so you've got a big audience but in the end, not to have a way of replenishing your audience with younger audiences is death. Are you talking about content or delivery? I'm talking about content and delivery because the experience of content is is actually a blend of the two. And this is not about kind of disco music, it's not about some pathetic attempt to leapfrog a, a generation. It is absolutely about going to audiences where they are on the devices that they use, when and where They want it. And getting realistic about what it means, back in about 2007, I went to see Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, and Reed's business, still going by the way, was a postal DVD business. You could rent DVDs, he was getting around Blockbuster and you could rent a DVD, it would arrive on post, you you looked at the DVD or the movie or whatever, sent it back and got another one and so on. But he already, back in 2007, was saying, you know, this is going to be all streamed and it's going to be global. And I said that the BBC was about to launch a catch-up service called the BBC iPlayer where all of the content was going to be available for people to yeah. use online. He said, don't bother, Mark, just give all the content to me, I'll fix it for you. Well, uh, my view was actually I'd rather, <laughs> I'd rather the BBC had its brand than its streaming service. And iPlayer, now, what, 10, 12 years ago, was an attempt to say we can extend the life of BBC television yeah. by making all of its content available to people who don't want to see it sitting in front of a box but want to either download it or to look at its live streaming wherever they are on whatever device they want. And we were, by 2008, porting iPlayer to kind of Playstations and Wii's yeah. and all of that stuff. It can be done. It's a bloody revolution. I mean, you know, it's very easy to think it's not or maybe there'll be a moment when it stops we are in the middle of a bloody revolution, which will probably be going when the youngest people in this room are fit to retire. But
2: you've still got the problem with funding, haven't you? Because you've got to persuade the governments to give you the funding. If you're aiming at everybody, you're trying to reach every single person in the country, then you, you're very much tempted to dumb it, down. It, 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 and if, you, if you're trying to you know, hold on to the traditional characteristics of public broadcasting to do something decent, to do something good, to do something that's, I don't know, educational or entertaining. Yeah both, then you're pushed in the other direction, you're pushed, you know, more upmarket, and then you've got the pressure that, well, you're only appealing to 20% of the population. So
1: how do you resolve that? And in a way, you could argue that in the US with, actually a very good service in many ways, but PBS PBS, would be, if you like, that's the ghetto, if you're not careful, you end up in. It's a pretty well-heeled ghetto. It's, you know, it's arts programmes for aesthetic middle-aged people who like that sort of thing. I'm one of them, by the way. So, that's the danger. I want to take you back to what I said about the Times, which is... Make something great, everyone will watch it and enjoy it. The BBC's programme in the last year, Bodyguard. The comedy, the BBC comedy, Fleabag. You make great, Attenborough's nature programmes, you make great stuff and people will value it. And if you make enough of it, the public will knock on the doors of the politicians. That's what you need. need, What public broadcasters need is the support of the public. And in the end, politicians aren't stupid. If the public really treasures their public broadcaster, they will fight for it. I think the tough thing is, I think you have to maintain that, if you like, the, the thing you've got to achieve is you've got to get the content to remain good. Dumbing down, I think, is just, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because it takes you straight into the mouth of, the, of commercial Great media. Great British Bake Off, that's pretty dumb, isn't it? Well, I thought, I think, as it happens, and I've got my... Hands are steeped in the blood of reality television. I'm a kind, of, you know, kind of war, cri- war criminal with. Uh, 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 uh. Did you design it? Let's not go there. But, but I think Bake Off is a really good uh, nothing to do with me. What's so interesting is it's like reality TVs is like a canvas. It can be tawdry, it can be kind of exploitative, and maybe still fascinating because of that, but an ugly thing. Bake Off is like an imagined. Beautiful version of Britain where people don't. Britain compete, in the 1950s. Pe- people, that's right, I mean, arguably leads to Brexit, but but, but, the, but people don't compete, they collaborate, nobody really wants to win because they're so worried about the feelings of the ones who are going to lose. <laughs> and so it evokes a world, and it's a rather charming world, and it's very human, and it's, you know, there's a, And I think the, the kind of tricks with Off is Bakoff made a particular point of celebrating including, you including know, the U- modern UK in all its diversity. And that, that was very touching, the, kind of yeah. the way in which diversity played into the programme and worked. So I think, it, in a weird way, even r- with reality television, you can show quite a sophisticated, quite pleasing, quite thoughtful view of a country through the lens of uh, Bake Off. A show, by the way, which they've tried to get to work in America, but it doesn't work because they want to kill each other. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thank you very much, Mark. It's an excellent, wonderful speech. Thanks, guys. Thank um, you. Great.
1: Thank, great you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank and, um...
0: You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. You can find links to all the stories mentioned in this discussion in our show notes. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe and you'll be the first to learn about our new episodes, events and other opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate us. This podcast is produced by Kevin Suarez with help from the two SCR studios in Sydney, Australia.